Welcome to Basic Brewing Radio for Thursday, November 24th, Thanksgiving. I'm James Spencer. Here at Basic Brewing Radio, we're all about home brewing, making beer at home. Well, this week we begin our conversation with John Palmer, author of How to Brew, about all-grain brewing. In the first half of our chat, we cover the process from milling to mashing. Well, this is Thanksgiving week here in the United States, and I want to take the opportunity to say thanks to everyone who supports this podcast, whether you're listening on a regular basis, telling your friends about the show, writing in with suggestions, or going so far as to support us financially through a purchase. This program would not exist without you. So, thanks, everybody. This is the 20th episode, Can You Believe It?, and time has just flown by. As we say around here in northwest Arkansas, we we appreciate you. Now, let's take a look at some of the uh, mail we've gotten this week. We got a note from a listener in Salt Lake City, Utah, who wants to remain anonymous. He says it's a Class B misdemeanor to brew without a license in Utah, and apparently they don't issue homebrew licenses, so, you know, he's laying low. This brewer says he started brewing in Rhode Island about 10 years ago, but gave it up after about a year because his family didn't like the smell of brewing. Now, I kind of I kind of went through that when my uh, wife was pregnant. She she didn't like strong smells of any kind. Anyway, he says uh, he moved to Salt Lake City recently and was inspired by a home brewing neighbor to take the hobby back up. We're glad to hear you're you're brewing again. Well, I'm going to say thanks to uh, Terry in uh, Kobe, Japan, another place with strict home brewing laws. Terry was kind enough to offer some help to another listener in Japan who wants to get into home brewing. Bob in Gifu, Japan, wrote asking to get in touch with Terry, whose letter we read on last week's show, uh, because Bob was having trouble finding products and information specific to brewing in Japan. He says he's lived in Japan for the past 15 years and misses tasting the home brews and the craft brews that we and our buddies at uh, Craft Beer Radio talk about. From what I understand, Terry is giving Bob advice. And I hope Bob will be tasting some uh, good homebrew of his own soon. As Terry says, we brewers have to stick together, and I agree with that. We have some advice from Ted in West Covina, California, on how to avoid bottle bombs. Ted says he learned from more experienced brewers that the way to avoid exploding bottles, given a uh, complete fermentation, of course, which is very important, is to make a syrup of priming sugar and water, Boil it for five minutes, then pour it into the bottom of a bottling bucket that has been flooded with CO2. By racking the beer on top of the syrup, it ensures a more homogeneous mixture. Additionally, Ted says he floods with CO2 again after racking and uses a sanitized spoon to stir lightly before bottling. Uh, Ted says he uses a small hand dispenser that's designed to pressure corny kegs to dispense his CO2. He says the hand dispenser uses those small CO2 cartridges that uh, he says he can get uh, uh, he can get about 25 of them for 12 bucks. He says one cartridge is enough for a 5 to 6.5 gallon carboy. Well, that's an interesting solution. If you're worried about oxidizing your beer when you rack into a bottling bucket, uh, the CO2 is heavier than air, so it would stay in the bucket pretty much and displace any oxygen that's in there. For you beginning home brewers, using CO2 in this way is going the extra mile. It's not a necessary step in the process, but it's always good to hear the tricks of the trade that uh, more experienced brewers are using to improve their beers. So uh, thanks for the tip, Ted. 
Well, that's just a sample of the mail that I've answered this past week. If you'd like to drop us a line, you can send it to james at basicbrewing.com or you can use the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And please don't forget to tell us where you're from. And speaking of where you're from, there's one more thing I want to pass on to you that could be fun. You may have heard of a service called Frapper where you can create a map online and have people put sort of virtual pushpins where they are. Well, I've created a Frapper map of the uh, uh, basic brewing radio listeners, and you can check that out by going to the link in the description of this week's episode. Now, I don't benefit financially from this Frapper site, and you don't have to become a member of the site or put your full name in there to uh, participate. But if you want to put a a virtual pushpin on the map where you are, I, I think that'd be kind of fun. Now, on to our interview with John Palmer on the process of brewing with all grain. John Palmer, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, now, how long? Tell us a bit about your background. How long have you been into brewing, and uh, how did you get into brewing, and and how did you decide to write books about brewing? I started brewing about oh, 12, 13 years ago in uh, nineteen ninety three, and I had been been interested in doing it for a few years prior to that. Um, I came from uh, Michigan Tech. And up in northern Michigan and uh, northern Minnesota, they drink a lot of, uh, well, what they call Bach beers, but they're actually, you know, just dark lagers. And uh, when I moved to Southern California in the the late 80s, everything out here was Corona. So I missed dark beer and uh, thought, you know, it can't be that hard to brew myself. So I got started, and my first batch was uh, miserable. (laughs) It... uh, it was, uh, I, of course, I tried to brew an American light lager to, you know, make something that my wife would like drinking, too, and it it tasted like uh, cidery pond water. It was pretty bad. <laughs> and uh, what really incensed me was when the uh, I took it to the brew shop, and the, the brew shop owner tasted it, and he goes, oh, yeah, yeah this, is, this is good beer. <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> so at that time, I, I got on the Internet, well, what was what passed for the internet in those days and uh people educated me quickly on do's and don'ts and uh, my second batch was really good at that point i decided that you know a lot of beginners make the same mistakes that i had and uh so i wrote up a little document and uh called how to brew your first beer and just you know listed out all those you know first batch do's and don'ts um so that uh, that first batch would turn out right. And uh, that's kind of how it all started. And was it the website first and, and then the book? Yeah. Um, I had, in uh, around 1995, uh, I'd started uh, writing a book. At that time, you know, of course, there's only uh, Miller and Papazian, and I felt uh, a third opinion was needed, and a third voice out there. I, I Started started writing at that time, and Brewers, uh, sorry, Brewing Techniques was going to publish it, but eventually uh, they went out of business, and I decided to just publish it to the web um, through the Real, Real Beer page. That seemed to be a good way to get the information out there that I had you know, collected, and uh, thought it'd be real useful. Then about a year later, uh, my wife remarked that it'd be nice if we could you know, make some money off of all my labors. So <laughs> we, uh, uh, I started, you know, down the road to self-publishing it. 
and uh, self-published it a year later. Now, the first edition of your book is still online pretty much in its entirety, is it not? Yeah, in fact, I've updated uh, sections of it from time to time. It's serving the purpose that I originally intended. That is, you know, having complete brewing information out on the Internet for anybody to, to use um, for free. Um, you know, learn how to brew beer. And then the benefit of that is that once they've, you know, spent a couple hours online trying to read it, then they'll go out and buy the hard copy, you know, if they really get interested in the hobby. So I I think it serves a good purpose out there uh, for both them and myself. So, so there is a reason to uh, to buy the book. <laughs> yeah, in fact, I, there's actually more information in the hard copy than there is on online. And it and it's difficult to uh, sometimes carry the computer out to where you're you're brewing. Or, That's true. Yeah, uh, a lot of people don't have the laptops to take out next to the brew kettle. And then and then if you're out on the patio, it's in the sunshine. You can't read them. And yeah. so the book is still the old technology is still the best. That's right. You can write, you know, write in the margins, um, stick little post-it notes in the pages. That's what mine looks like. <laughs> and uh, you know, so when you when you're looking for that little factoid that uh, tells you, you know, not to add, you know, a, a half cup of magnesium sulfate to the batch, then uh, you'll know where <laughs> to find that. Now we've got before we get into the process uh, of uh, all grain brewing, uh, we have a, a question. From Sam in Urbana, Illinois, and uh, I wanted to kind of uh, start off with a question uh, from Sam. He says, uh, as an extract with grains brewer, I would like to know why many of the all-grain recipes I see call for producing seven or eight gallons of wort for the boil. With extracts and grains, I usually start the boil with about six gallons. I don't understand why the extra word is needed for all grain. And it says, please tell John that his book has been very helpful to me and is my main reference for answers to my questions. Without him, I wouldn't be having the fun I am today with brewing and wouldn't be enjoying some very good home brews with my buddies. So so some good praise for you. That's always nice to hear. Yeah. So what about that? Why why do the recipes uh, that he reads uh, call for six or eight gallons of word for the boil, and, and he usually starts out with uh, six gallons of water? It's it's not that these you know seven or eight gallons is required. It's just that it tends to be generated. Um, most all grain uh, recipes are based on uh, continuous sparging or fly sparging, as it's sometimes called. And that's where you sprinkle uh, water over the grain bed and attempt to rinse, you know, more sugar out of the out of the grain. When you do that, you're you know continually diluting uh, the, the wort, and you end up collecting seven or eight gallons of wort that you will boil down to five, five or five and a half gallons to meet to make your intended recipe gravity. Um, now, if, you know, if you realize that it's taking you that much sparging and that you're tending to get, uh, some astringent flavors out of that much, uh, sparging of your grain, you can add more grain to your grain bill and, uh, not have to sparge so much to get that level of extract, say, in six or six and a half gallons that you could boil to five. So it's a question of understanding, you know, your efficiency, uh, your um, how much yield you're going to get from your grain, and uh, planning your uh, boiling volume to get to your original gravity. 
Now, I know that that when I I brew a batch, uh, I, I target seven gallons in the brew pot because by the time I boil for an hour and then uh, uh, you know lose some volume with the tube in in the uh, the kettle when I I siphon out, I, you know I wind up with five gallons in my fermenter. Now he he says that he starts off with uh, six gallons of water. And that's before he adds his extract in. So he's also adding volume uh, to his wort with the extract, is he not? Probably, yeah. Depending, on, he didn't say. Well, I don't think whether he's using liquid or dry. The liquid would add, you know, that much volume to the batch. Um, the dry would add uh, a lot less volume. Uh, also, if he's doing, if he's steeping specialty grain in that water and then taking the grain bag out, uh, he'll lose, you know, a couple quarts there. So I have a feeling by the time, depending on what his ingredients, by the time he's done, he's probably hitting, um, you know, five and a half gallons going into his fermenter, and uh, to end up with you know five gallons that's uh, bottled or kegged, and that's what I always try to aim for too. I was, you know, like you, I try to end up with about um, five and a half to six gallons going into the fermenter, so that when I'm done fermenting and, and racking it to a Cornelius keg, I get a full Cornelius keg. Yeah, it's, it's always, you know, you, you want to get as many beers as possible out of that, uh, That's right. out of that brew. Yeah, I'm, and I'm, sometimes I over, over budget and I'll have a little bit of leftover wort, uh, you know, in the, in the boiling kettle, and it's just painful to pour that out. <laughs> of course, if you were, if you were ambitious, uh, and knew how to can, you could uh, you could can that leftover wort and use that for starters later, couldn't you? That's true. That's true. Now, let's talk about all grain. First of all, uh, if uh, if I'm an extract brewer and uh, and I've heard about all grain and I want to learn more, why would I want to go into all grain brewing? What are the advantages to an all grain brew? There's a couple. Um, one of the one of the biggest or biggest differences between extract brewing and all grain brewing is that when you are doing the mash and planning the recipe, you have a lot more control over the fermentability of the wort than you do when you buy an extract kit or use you know extract and specialty grains to create a recipe because in that with extract you know the extract producer has uh, determine the fermentability beforehand. And so uh, I've talked to several exp- extract producers over the last couple of years, and some of them deliberately uh, produce their extract to be uh, higher in dextrins, higher, you know, less fermentable. Um, and that practice goes back to the fact that uh, so many beer kits used to be uh, one can of extract to which you would add a couple pounds of table sugar, mm. which has you know is uh, ferments very dry, you know, ferments completely. So by blending the two, um, the kit would come out with the correct finishing gravity for you know a typical beer somewhere between uh, one zero zero five and uh, and ten ten. So with a with a uh, a typical extract, then you would get a a beer with more body. And if you wanted a beer that is was more alcohol content and and kind of a lighter body, lighter beer. body, yeah, something you know more, uh, say something more like a Newcastle, you know, a lighter bodied beer that you're that a, you, know, you may be more used to drinking. The all malt beer would come out a little bit heavier than that. So 
So, but if, but if you do that recipe in all grain, then you can tailor your mash and your enzymes to produce a very fermentable wort that will finish exactly like the commercial beer you're trying to emulate. Now, it seems to me, and I don't know if it's my imagination or not, and, and I think Bob Hansen thinks it's my imagination, but uh, I, I think that, uh, uh, and I've brewed some really good extract brews over the years. Yes, me too. Uh, but it seems like uh, the all-grain beers that I've been making uh, are ready to drink quicker. It seems like they, they uh, reach a, a a more mature stage in bottle conditioning than an extract beer. And, I, you know, and like I say, I don't know if that's just my imagination or if it's, like you said, the uh, the extract or the uh, all-grain beers that I've been making are, are of lighter body or, or of kind of a different mouthfeel. I'm, I'm not sure. Do you, do you have an opinion on that? Um, I haven't noticed that myself. Um, and I think it's probably because I just haven't brewed the same recipe, you know, uh, one way and then the other way to be able to compare the results. I'm one of those brewers and cooks that can't do anything the same way twice. <laughs> <laughs> so I've always, I'm always got to tweak something. But um, one, of the, one of the other differences in extract all grain is that the dehydration process of uh, generating malt extract you know, strips out some of the volatiles, some of the, some of the fresh grain uh, flavors and aromas, I think, out of the extract. Um, so all-grain beers tend to be just a little bit brighter in malt character, I think, than the equivalent extract beer. And that's another difference that uh, some people find, and that's one reason a lot of people go to the extract and specialty grain uh, type brewing is because they can, by steeping st- specialty malts such as crystal, they can add back in some of that uh, fresh malt character that uh, they otherwise may be lacking, depending on the extract they're using. You know that that's one comment, and and maybe that's maybe that's what I'm tasting. Uh, you know, my friend Steve Wilkes uh, said that uh, when he tasted my first all grain beer, he said, you know, you can really taste the grain in this, and it and it's you know wasn't an off flavor at all. It's just kind of a fresher, uh, more kind of grainy taste. One thing that uh, is kind of a barrier to people in uh, going from extract to all grain is, you know, oh gosh, well I've got to I've got to buy a bunch of extra equipment uh, to do that, don't I? Well, you know, what exactly do you have to buy uh, or get into to uh, to get into all grain brewing? The first thing they're going to do is build a, a mash lauder ton out of a picnic cooler because that's that's your mashing vessel you know, for using the all-grain method. The other thing they're going to need is they're going to need a large boiling pot to boil all the work. And I I recommend like an 8-gallon aluminum stock pot. Um, you can get these at, you know, restaurant supp- supply stores, um, some of the warehouse grocery stores. And the advantage of aluminum is that it conducts heat a lot better you can uh, often put it over two burners on your kitchen stove to heat it more efficiently. And uh, the aluminum makes sure that you don't get hot spots that can scorch the wort. Um, the, you know, the porcelainware or enamelware pots, the steel ones that everybody uses for canning and such, those are a lot cheaper, but the heat conductivity isn't as good. 
and uh, you do tend to get some scorching on the bottom of those, especially when you're trying to do a real full volume boil, you know, getting six gallons to boil on the stove. It takes quite a bit of heat. So the two, the two pieces of equipment you're going to need are a larger boiling pot and then a uh, cooler mash lauder ton. And then you can use your old boiling, boiling pot, which is probably like a five-gallon pot, to, say, heat up your sparge water that you're going to use in the mash. And you can really use your imagination as far as, uh, you know, what you devise for your, your mash and, and lauder ton. Uh, you know, I've, I've heard of people using, uh, you know, just simple plastic buckets to, to mash in and, you know, putting a, uh, a, a sleeping bag around them for, for insulation. Uh, and then I think it was in uh, Papazian's uh, book where he used uh, one bucket inside another with the holes poked in the bottom for the, you know, the the louder ton. Was that, uh, was that Papazian's book that he showed that? Yeah, and, yeah the... Uh, the it was called the uh, Zapap lauder ton system. Uh, f- two five-gallon buckets inside each other, and one the inner bucket being drilled with lots of holes. That works pretty well. I mean, uh, you can. That's what we'd call a false bottom system. It works quite well for laudering your grain. The only drawback to it is that it's uh, the volume isn't terribly large, and uh, which limits you know the gravity of the the wort you can generate. It tends to lose heat during the mash because it's not well insulated you know that that's the sleeping bag arrangement you can definitely spend as almost as little money as you want or as much money as you want to get a <laughs> to, to get yeah. a system nowadays you can you can spend you know maybe a, a hundred bucks or you can spend a few thousand dollars getting an all-grain system set up yeah you could go, really go hog wild with some of the large brewing sculpture systems uh, that are available you know converted kegs and propane burners and uh, you know temperature controls and pumps and so on um, I prefer to use you know the ten gallon beverage cooler uh, system where you take a, a gaunt beverage cooler um, put a false bottom or a manifold inside and uh, May take advantage of the little spigot hole they have in those to run the run the hose out, and uh, that makes a very effective lauder ton. And the insulation of the cooler helps you hold the mash temperature during the hour that you're conducting the mash. Now, what is the explain the purpose of the false bottom and and talk about the grain bed and and how how it gets built and, and what its purpose is. Your malt bill, uh, your various malts that you use to make the beer, uh, are crushed and uh, you strive to keep the husks of the barley intact. You don't want to get those ground up. And those husks help form um, a filter bed in the, in the mash. And also, since they are insoluble, they don't, the, uh, the mash doesn't turn to, you know, uh, paste. <laughs> it is still water permeable, and that allows the wort to flow out of the grain and so you can you know collect the word after the mash is done. Uh, false bottom is uh, like the Zapath system where you have a a layer, a plastic layer, a metal layer that's full of holes, and all that really does is just support the grain over um, the the true bottom of the of the cooler, and then you have your outlet hose underneath that false bottom, and that way you can draw off you know, clear wort from the mash. You can also use uh, p- slotted pipe manifolds. Those are very effective. 
and also uh, like bazooka screens, which is our like uh, stainless steel screen that's been rolled into a tube, or you can use the uh, stainless steel braid from uh, washing machine hoses. You know, uh, cut the ends off, slip that that braid off, and uh, then rig up uh, some clamps to hold. Use that screen as your uh, straining device. The the Grain bed itself is what forms the filter. It's not uh, the the false bottom or the braid or the screen that is actually doing the filtering. It's the grain bed itself and those husks that are forming the actual filter bed. The uh, the false bottom and such just keeps the two separated as you're drawing off your work. And that's why it's important to uh, to get a really good uh, mill or a really good grind on your grains and and not to you you can you can either mill it too little or you can mill it too much, right? That's right. Everybody used to use Corona mills, which is like a, a corn grinding mill for making a cornmeal. Those are the kind of the, the silver-looking ones with the handle that you crank and you kind of clamp them on your uh, kitchen table or whatever? Is... Yes, that's right. Those are the ones. And they, they use uh, counter-rotating discs to actually grind the, the grain. Uh, which is not what you want to do. You want to crush the grain, uh, preferably between two rollers or a roller and a flat plate, so that you don't shred the husk. You want that husk to be as intact as possible, maybe just split in half, so that um, you keep your grain bed permeable to water and you can get good fluid flow through it, and that allows you to water and rinse uh, the wort from the grain very effectively. Now, what, what's going on in the mash? I mean, we've got our our base malts, and then we've got our specialty malts. Uh, so maybe maybe we should start there and talk about what base malts are and then what, what specialty malts are. Specialty malts are uh, the crystal malts, the roasted malts that you use for color and flavor or extra flavor. Base malts are what forms the uh, the basis of the beer, those malts supply, you know, 75 to 90 percent of your fermentable sugar, and they also supply all the enzymes that are used to convert the starches in the malt to sugars. They're kind of the muscle of the mash, I think we've said before. That's right. Yeah, uh, Bob Hansen gave a real nice um, discussion of malts and uh, the different kinds. I listened to that uh, podcast myself from your show, and. The uh, the base malts, you know, supply most of the fermentables to making the beer. Um, crystal malt supplies some extra sweetness, some uh, caramel flavors. You have kilned malt, such as Vienna malt and Munich malt, um, biscuit malt, that provide um, some toasty flavors, some... Um, some uh, biscuit-like flavors that uh, accent the malt character. And then you have uh, the roasted malts, such as chocolate malt and roast barley, that provide you know the heavy roast, the, uh, the strong coffee-like flavors uh, to stouts and so on. So you can really get some complexity in, uh, in so as Ray Daniel says, in designing your, your own beer and, and using all these different... Uh, these different specialty malts and using the different kinds of, of base malts that are out there to get these really complex and, and different uh, flavors. Yeah, and that's I think that's the real lure of all grain brewing is that you can you know 
you can combine all these different malts, you know, on a whim. <laughs> you, you can say, I want to make a beer that has, you know, five or six different malts in it. I'm looking for a lot of complexity. Um, you know, you can make all those decisions that you, it's a little bit harder to make when you're brewing with extract because someone's made most of those decisions for you. So all grain brewing allows you to be really creative in creating the beer. And and as we've said on the on the podcast before, if you are an extract brewer and you're happy with the uh, the extract that you're getting, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. That's right. But if you want a bit more flexibility, if you want to experiment a little more, all grain is going to give you that that flexibility that you don't have with extracts. That's right. It's um, it's flexibility, creativity, and also a lot more time. I find that uh, that I tend to, these days I brew about half extract and half all grain because um, many times I'm looking for you know a an everyday drinking beer you know fairly simple beer um, and I want to be able to brew that and get it in the fermenter within a couple hours so I can you know uh, get back to the rest of my weekend with chores and and birthday parties and whatnot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's always there's always stuff going on the weekends these days. Your brew day, I found that my brew day, when I do an all-grain batch as opposed to an extract batch, it about doubles. Uh, you know, I think the shortest brew day that I've had for, you know, including setup and cleanup at the, you know, setup at the beginning and, and cleanup at the end, I think the shortest uh, all-grain day that I've had was like five and a half hours. Yeah, I, I, yeah, five, six hours is about right for me, too. And and a lot of that time is just necessary. There's there's nothing that you can do because there are you know those times that that you you've got to let the the process work and there's just no way to hurry that up. That's right. Yeah, you're waiting for the mash or you're conducting the sparge or you're heating water and uh, and when you're doing you know a full volume boil of say you know six seven gallons. Uh, that takes quite a while to get up to a boil. Yeah, even if you've got the uh, you know the turbo propane powered uh, <laughs> outdoor burner, yeah. it still uh, takes a while to to get up to boil. You you mentioned mashing, and and let's let's talk about mashing. There are what three basic theories of uh, of mashing. There's uh, infusion mashing and step mashing, and then decoction mashing. This is a hotly debated topic. Um, which mash method is the best is a question that's often asked. And it isn't so matter so much a matter of which is best or better than another one. There's been there's been an evolution in brewing techniques. A um, hundred years ago, malts were not modified so well as they are today. And by modified, I mean that when the malt is actually made in by the maltster in the malting house, and that is the the barley is uh, steeped in water and drained and allowed to germinate for several days. Um, the maltster observes the barley corn and watches as the little plant shoot starts to grow in that barley seed, and they judge the amount of growth that's occurring in that um, malt. And when they feel that it's gotten you know, far enough, then they dry the barley out to stop the process. And in that time, 
the starches that the brewer is looking to use, those have become unlocked from a protein carbohydrate matrix that they're kind of bound up in. The amount of enzymatic unlocking that occurs during the malting process is what we refer to as the modification, how well those starches have been released. And perhaps Bob had talked about this in your earlier show. A hundred years ago, uh, malts were not as well modified as they are today. It was harder to extract the starches from the malt, harder to get that starch into solution and convert it into sugars. So that's when uh, the decoction mashing process was developed, where you would take uh, your mash, you'd take about a third of that mash out into a separate pot, and you'd leave most of the liquid behind. You'd get just get mostly a heavy grain portion, and you would raise it up to a conversion temperature, which is um, about 150 degrees F, and allow that to convert partially. Uh, then you would bring that to a boil, and then take that boiling hot cereal and put it back into your mash tun, and uh, use that to help bring the, the main mash up to the, up to the conversion temperature. Uh, and then you, they would take another portion of that mash out and do the same thing. Heat it to conversion, bring it to a boil, add that back to the main mash. And part of the part of the function of bringing it to a boil was it really helped break up those uh, malt starches so that when it was added back to the main mash tun where all the liquid was and where you know the, most of the enzymes were in solution, the enzymes were better able to act on that cooked cereal to convert the starches to sugars. That's the decoction mashing process. Uh, meanwhile, in the, in the UK, they were working with uh, malt that had been modified more. They, they kilned it a little bit longer, malted it a little bit longer, and it was more modified, and didn't need to be boiled like the decoction, like the uh, lesser modified malts that the, the Europeans used that had to be decoction mashed. They could go through um, one or two temperature rests by infusion, that is adding boiling water to the mash to take the mash from, say, 140 degrees Fahrenheit uh, for what we call a beta amylase rest up to the 150 degrees for the alpha amylase rest or, and then even higher up to like 156, 157 uh, to kind of deactivate the beta rest a little bit, the, the beta amylase that is, enzyme and focus on the alpha am, amylase enzyme and make a little bit heavier bodied beer that way, um, a little bit less fermentable. That that's referred to as stepped infusion mashing, where you take it through different temperature rests by adding boiling water to the mash. But that represents, you know, time and energy use in the in the brewery. And uh, brewers wanted to be able to achieve beer in one infusion step, and so they wanted malt that was more modified, that would respond to a single infusion and convert all the starches to sugars and uh, be you know, more efficient in the brewing process. And so today's malts are what we call uh, 
well modified and uh, they can be fully converted with a single temperature infusion and that temperature varies from 150 degrees up to 158 degrees depending on the fermentability of the wort that you're looking for, for depending on the style of beer you're making. So, so this is where you can get the, the customized uh, uh, feel that, that we were talking about before. Yeah. The, all the enzymes uh, have different temperature and pH optimum ranges, and so you can look at those, those enzyme ranges and help you know, design your beer. You can you know, design the fermentability of the wort, the body of the beer, uh, the residual sweetness of the beer, and you can also, of course, you know, use different malts in your grain bill to help drive a, a particular style. Now, the, let's let's talk a bit about the uh, the enzyme rests. I mean, the, or the, you, you can, uh, if you are just getting into all grain, you don't have to worry about uh, taking your mash to different temperature levels. You can just hit the one uh, temperature level that that converts the starches to sugars. Right. Right. And 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 then, you know, you don't have to worry about all the other rests. And That's you can right. get a good beer. Yeah, single temperature infusion mashing at 150 to 158 degrees um, Fahrenheit will uh, do the mash for you. You can put your put your crushed grain in your in your lauter ton, in your mash ton. Pour in the hot water uh, and and you can there are equations that can help you um, drive your target temperature. Let's say if you're looking for 155 degrees Fahrenheit mash temperature, um, there are equations that will tell you how hot to make your infusion water to achieve that temperature. And those equations are are fairly accurate. Um, So typically you want water that's about 15 degrees over your, your target temperature. And if you're if you're not a math whiz, there are computer programs out there. You know, like I'm not a math whiz, and <laughs> right. <laughs> I've There's got a, a lot little... of software out there these days right. that can do it for you. I've even got one on my PDA. You know that I can have out there on the patio to help me uh, figure out these temperatures. So so don't be afraid. <laughs> That's right. You can you can make all grain brewing as complicated as you want, or as simple as you want. Uh, Charlie Papazian excels in making all grain brewing simple. There are other people that uh, excel in making it very complicated, and uh, they've got you know, some outstanding beers to show for it. Uh, and you can brew outstanding beer you know, with any method. It's uh, it, that's one of the really nice aspects of this hobby. Now, now talk about why why would you would you want to go uh, from a, a single uh, infusion rest? to a multiple temperature mash? Depending on the style of beer you're making. Say so you a wheat beer? A wheat beer. Um, a, you might need a protein rest with a, with a wheat beer. That's right. Um, protein rest, that uh, temperature range is about uh, 45 to 55 degrees Celsius or 115 to 130 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, there you have what we call the uh, proteinase enzymes and peptidase enzymes that uh, make your long-chain proteins soluble, and then the peptidase enzyme uh, breaks up those heavier, those soluble proteins into uh, very small proteins and free amino nitrogen, which are yeast yeast nutrients, 
And uh, when you're working with a malt such as wheat malt that has a lot of protein in it, that amount of protein in the mash can make it difficult to lauder, difficult to extract the wort from the grain bed. So you can do a protein rest during your mash that helps break up that protein and reduce the body of the beer. And, and it may also help with the chill haze. Uh. That's right. Yeah, um, I mentioned the, the making the insoluble proteins soluble. Uh, when you have insoluble proteins, uh, those are the proteins that uh, can cause haze. And uh, so you break up those proteins with the protein rest, and you can achieve a clearer beer. So that so you you could add the protein rest, and there there are other rests uh, along the thermometer uh, to <laughs> to do different uh, tasks, you know, and and you can do that either you can raise the temperature of your and you want to go from from lower temperature to upper temperature and not not the other way around. Yeah, let me let me talk about the carbohydrate conversion uh, a little bit. There there are two enzymes the beta amylase and the alpha amylase enzyme that do the the bulk of the conversion of starches to sugars. Now barley starch can't be acted on by these enzymes until it's you know becomes soluble in the mash until it becomes what we call gelatinized. Um, in when it's in the in the seed it's a very crystalline hard uh, material and the enzymes can't get in there to uh, get access to the starches. So you've got to crush it up, soak it in water, and as you approach um, uh, 60C, which is, uh, how much is that? 140 degrees Fahrenheit, there we go. That's when your starches start becoming soluble at 140 to 145, 149 degrees Fahrenheit, 60 to 65 C, uh, that's when those starches are accessible by the enzymes, and that's when you start getting the, the starch to sugar conversion. Beta amylase makes up the maltose sugars, that is a small fermentable sugar that's composed of two glucose molecules, and that sugar com- um, is the bulk of the wort. You know, 75% of your uh, fermentable sugar is maltose. Uh, alpha amylase breaks up some of the larger starch chains and um, allows the beta amylase greater access to uh, make the, the ferment, highly fermentable maltose. So it's the combination of those two plus a third enzyme called limit dextrinase that... Uh, really help break down the starches into fermentable sugars. And all of those enzymes, those three enzymes, start working at uh, 140F, 60C, and work up through 155, 158 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, Beta amylase becomes denatured at 65C, which is 150 degrees Fahrenheit. So it's really on the tail end of its temperature range. And so your mash conversion temperatures start at 150 degrees Fahrenheit or 65 C and go up to about 70 degrees C or uh, 100 
and uh, 58 degrees Fahrenheit. By using those two um, enzymes and the temperature temperatures that they're most uh, comfortable working at, you know, beta down at 150 degrees Fahrenheit, alpha a little bit higher, you can tailor the fermentability of the wort that way. A lower mash temperature of 150F will make a very a highly fermentable beer, a very, you know, a light-bodied beer. A higher mash temperature of 155, 157 Fahrenheit will make a more dextrinous, uh, less fermentable, a uh, little heavier-bodied beer. And that's another um, benefit of all-grain brewing is that you can tailor the fermentability of your wort that way. Well, you can read the entire first edition of John's book at howtobrew.com. Well, next week we carry on our conversation with loudering and how pH affects brewing with all grain. Well, if you have brewing questions, show suggestions, or just want to say hey, write to james at basicbrewing.com or just fill out the contact form on basicbrewing.com. And don't forget to tell us where you're from. And if you're wanting to get into home brewing for the first time, while you're on our site, you can check out our DVD, Basic Brewing, Introduction to Extract Home Brewing. We'll walk you through the process step by step. You can see a listing of the fine folks across the country who sell our DVD. And if there isn't a vendor in your area, you can order it from us online. Well, that's all until next week. Until then, thanks for listening. I'm James Spencer. Production help for Basic Brewing Radio and our website is provided by Kelly Dodson. Basic Brewing Radio is a production of Active Voicing. We'll talk to you next time. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.